All right, we're going to try to finish up this morning, excuse me, our study in Acts chapter 3, just as a word of encouragement to some of you. um, I had originally mentioned when we launched into our our exposition of the book of Acts that I would uh, be going a little bit quicker, uh, quicker pace than I did through Matthew, and then when I spent 20... 20 studies in chapter 1, some of you doubted my word, and probably rightfully so, um, but it, we, we were 20 studies in chapter 1, then 15 in chapter 2, and now uh, as we finish today, we'll have uh, four studies for chapter 3, so we are picking up pace, and it just really depends on the material. If the material requires it, I'll slow down again, and uh, uh, if we have material like we did in chapter 3, will probably maintain this current pace. Uh, But for today, we are finishing chapter 3, and where we left off is right in the middle of a public proclamation of the gospel by the Apostle Peter. The circumstance, remember, is that the Lord has used Peter and John to heal a man who was lame from birth and had been begging out at the beautiful gate, which was the grand entryway into the temple proper in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, when they did that, when by God's grace, they miraculously healed this man, and he was instantly healed. And it was apparent and obvious that he was because he had not been able to even stand, let alone walk for 40 years. He had been laying at this gate every day begging for his living. And then having been healed, he leapt to his feet. He was leaping and walking and praising the Lord. And now uh, they have, uh, Peter's redirected the crowd that's gathering to find out what's going on with this miracle to uh, Solomon's porch, which is on the east side of the temple proper. And it's a huge area that the teachers in Jerusalem commonly use for their classes, uh, their their. Uh, religious study classes, so to speak. And so it's a perfect opportunity, perfect venue for Peter to make a proclamation of the gospel. This portion is, as I've mentioned a few times now, it's commonly called Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts after the one that we find in uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But I just want us to remember this is not technically a sermon at all. Uh, sermon being more properly what I'm doing this morning, speaking to those of you who already know the Lord and have already embraced Uh, salvation in Christ, this is speaking to an unbelieving crowd, a crowd that had been just a few weeks before this in the circumstances leading to the crucifixion of Christ had been hardened in heart against the one that Peter is now proclaiming as the Lord, as the Messiah, and as the Savior. And so uh, we've spent two previous messages on this message that Peter proclaims, which really starts back in verse 12. I won't take us back through what he covered other than to say in our most recent study, the middle section, uh, he made an emphasis about how Christ fulfilled uh, all of the prophecies that the Old Testament prophets had pointed forward to in terms of there, by, by God's revealing grace, they had proclaimed this is what the Messiah will do and this is what he will be like when he does originally arrive on the stage of history. And Peter is identifying that Christ has fulfilled all of those prophecies. And then he called them to repent and attached three specific 
special conditional blessings to their repentance, things that God would do for them that would tremendously change and transform their lives, just like all of God's blessings do for us when we experience them and receive them. But he had tied the blessing, the experience of blessing to their repentance, meaning that the idea that they're conditional blessings is you get these blessings one way and one way only, and that's when you are in right relationship with the Lord. And repentance is the primary requirement that the Lord places on our hearts in order to receive the blessing that he wants to overflow our lives with. And that repentance is simply a a change of mind, change of perspective, change of attitude, a redirection, a 180 degree change so that we're now traveling in the Lord's direction rather than our own. Now that brings us up to verse 22 and verses 22 through 26 ends his message that day. And uh, we've got a, a full... Um, a full amount of things to consider in this section, but let me start reading there. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, what the first thing I want us to notice about this last section, and it's also true of the two previous sections of what Peter had to proclaim that day. I've asked us to consider as we're going through this message, just like we did in chapter two in his message on the day of Pentecost, consider what what Peter focuses their attention on in his proclamation of the gospel, and then compare it to the typical proclamations of the gospel that we hear in modern Christian outreach and evangelism efforts. Now, I'm not saying by that that all modern efforts are bad or all modern efforts are unbiblical, but many modern efforts at evangelism do fall short of the Lord's standard and how he would address the hearts of unbelievers. Uh, I'll give you an example that came to my attention this week. How many of you have seen one of the ads? There's billboards and there's TV ads and there's even radio ads. I think they're dedicating some group. I don't know which group it is. I haven't bothered to look it up yet. Some Christian group is dedicating multiple millions of dollars with uh, ad uh, buys for TV spots, radio spots, and billboard uh, space. And it's, the, uh, it's focused on Jesus, which is always good. Focus on Jesus, it's always good in the gospel. But it's the He Gets Us campaign. Have you, any of you seen any of these ads? He Gets Us. I, it doesn't surprise me if you haven't seen them because I've seen a number of these ads and I probably saw at least one of these ads three times before I even noticed what it was about. It's a very super low-key ad campaign. It doesn't say anything about who Jesus is. 
It doesn't say anything about what he accomplished. It doesn't call any attention like Peter's message on the day of Pentecost or on this day, shortly after Pentecost, to the, to the, the great work of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or even the crucifixion of Christ. It doesn't draw attention to any of those things. What it draws attention to is it's, um, this particular ad I'm thinking of is just a, a montage of people that are describing their difficult experiences in life. And then at the end of the ad, there's just this one line, he gets us. And the point of the ad is just to kind of give the unbeliever the sense that Jesus knows where you're at. Jesus understands what you're going through and he gets it. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And it's kind of an implied connection of since he gets us in our trials and difficult circumstances so deeply, why don't you connect with him since he's already in that sense of of empathy for you connected to you? I'm just going to give you my opinion on this. There's nothing... There's nothing evil about the ad campaign. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with the Apostle Paul when he described in one of his letters that, you know, no matter how poorly they're doing it, if they're proclaiming the gospel at any level, if there's any gospel content as you're speaking to unbelievers, praise God for that. The gospel, at least to some extent or some degree, is being preached. But my problem with this campaign is there's actually no gospel content at all. It is true, it is absolutely true that the Lord Jesus gets unbelievers. He's not mystified by unbelievers. He knows what unbelievers are going through. He knows how difficult life is in a fallen world that's corrupted by sin and made even worse by the continuing wickedness and rebellion of fallen human hearts that are outside of right relationship with him. He gets all of that, but... What saving message is there in just the assurance that Jesus understands? And the idea is there is no saving message that's being proclaimed at all. And to me, the sad thing about that is multi-millions of kingdom dollars are being spent on some, yeah, vague is a good word, some vague effort to say Jesus, Jesus is aware of you. Well, certainly Peter wants the crowd that he's speaking to today to know that Jesus is aware of them, but he certainly doesn't leave that message as the core concern on his heart. He is much more direct. He is much more substantive in his proclamation and much more what I would call biblical in his communication to them. He is, even with speaking to unbelievers, he's doing what you and I might consider to be an in-depth Bible study in his proclamation, but aiming it at their hearts, aiming it at the, the goal of convicting their hearts and bringing them to that point of awareness of their need to repent. So we left off in verse 21 with his, his call to repent. And now in verse 22, he shifts gears once more to end his message And the focus from verse 22 through verse 26 is, well, at least all the way at least until verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26 is everything is focused on Christ. 
And to me, this is a, a, a dramatic difference between how Peter proclaims the gospel and how that new uh, campaign proclaims, so to speak, the gospel. In that the focus of that campaign is all about, it's, it's all about you. Jesus gets you. He understands what you're going through. It's kind of like, I don't think they intended to do this, but this is the impression I got from watching the ad. You're the center of the universe. You're the center of your own little universe. And Jesus understands how difficult your universe is. But as Peter proclaims his message, the center of the universe is not the people listening. The center of the universe is the one who sits upon the throne and what he has accomplished and who he actually is and what God has been saying through his chosen prophets all the way through human history, pointing to him as the answer to all of the problems that human sin has created. So what he does first in verse 22 is he focuses their attention on a familiar religious leadership character from Old Testament history, the most familiar. You could say, well, who's the most important character in the Jewish mindset because he is proclaiming this message in the Jewish temple in the city of Jerusalem to a Jewish crowd? Who is the most important character in Old Testament history? And you would come, if you're considering it from that perspective, you would come down to three names. And then it's like, it's like a discussion and a debate. Which of these three names are most important? The names are Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. Those are the only three candidates in terms of the three most important characters in the Old Testament. You could argue and say maybe King David as well because God did something very special through King David. But really it comes down to those three in terms of their special role and what God accomplished through them. And what Peter does is he focuses their attention first and foremost on Moses as in one very important sense, the most important character in the Old Testament. He also later, if you'll notice down in verse 25, he does call attention to Abraham as well, but almost as a secondary confirming point to the point he makes about Moses. So let's focus on Moses first. So he says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, why does he quote Moses here? He knows that the crowd that's there that day in the temple consider Moses to be the number one most important figure in all of old covenant history. What we consider and know to be old covenant. And so because of that, if they're going to listen to anybody, you should listen to Moses and what he has to say. And what he quotes from, and let's turn back and read the, the portion that Peter's actually quoting from. It's from a declaration, a prophecy declaration that Moses made back in the book of Deuteronomy. It's recorded for us in Deuteronomy in chapter 18. I won't have time to read all of the verses leading up to the quote, but I'll briefly summarize them for you. In starting in verse 9 in particular, leading through to verse 14, Moses gives the children of Israel a serious warning. You know, the setting for Deuteronomy, the, the setting for Deuteronomy is, it's what we call the second law. 
And what is meant by that, the, the word Deuteronomy literally translates the second law. And what is meant by that is not a second and different or distinct law from the first law. The first law was proclaimed and revealed by the Lord to Moses and then through Moses to the people way back at the beginning of their rescue from Egypt and their wilderness journey as the Lord brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, brought Moses up to the summit of Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days and 40 nights there in the presence of the Lord and the Lord proclaimed to him the law. Not just any random law, but the law, meaning God's own law, which then later, because Moses was the one that carried it to the people, was later identified as not just the law of God, but also the law of Moses. But then 40 years later, after their wilderness journey, just as they're about to enter the promised land, the Lord gathered his people back together just before they crossed the river Jordan and entered the promised land. And through Moses, he had Moses rehearse the law to them a second time. The first rehearsal of the law on Sinai was like the first witness that this is what God is holding his people accountable to in their covenant relationship with him. And the second is the second witness now in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the first verses of chapter 18, especially verses 9 through 14, the Lord gives a very stern and strong warning to his people. You're about to enter the promised land, and when you do, you're going to be tempted. And you're going to be tempted by deceivers, deceivers who will come to you and will claim to represent me and claim to be speaking for me, but they're not. They're deceivers, they're wicked, they're evil, and they will only take you away from me. And then in verse 15, what he does is he says, okay, instead of these deceivers, I want you to understand that I get your need to be on track with me in terms of what I am calling you to live according to. And the problem, of course, was Moses was not going to continue with the people beyond this point. After the book of Deuteronomy is revealed and written by Moses, then the Lord did eventually bring the children of Israel across the river Jordan into the promised land, but Moses died in the wilderness. So the question would be, how will the people stay on track without such a strong leader like Moses? The Lord addresses that issue here in verse 15. And this is what Peter is quoting from. And he, Peter is, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, applying this section to Christ, saying Christ fulfills what Moses spoke about in those long ago years. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, Horeb is Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Now let me just briefly describe what just happened here in verses 16 and verse 17. That day when the Lord first revealed his law to his people through Moses, it was a day of amazing displays of the Lord's power and majesty on earth, not just in heaven. 
it's described that the Lord himself descended upon Mount Sinai wrapped like a, like a, a person is wrapped in a cloak by the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord. But the entire area shook with a great earthquake. There was, there was a wind that was tremendous, like a, a, a giant storm that was happening. There was lightning beyond measure that was emanating from this cloud. There was fire that could be seen on the summit of the cloud. And all of it together was an event that caused the entire nation, which was camped at the foot of the mountain, to tremble in great fear. And in all of that experience, in the midst of it, the Lord began to speak to his people with his own voice, audibly, to the entire nation at the same time. But he spoke not in a small, quiet voice as he does in other circumstances. He spoke with a voice of authority and power and majesty that caused them to tremble as they heard each word. And at a certain point, the people in unison cried out to Moses and said, please tell the Lord we can't handle this anymore. Please don't speak any further to us. Have the Lord speak to you, and then we'll listen as you pass on the Lord's message to us. And here, the Lord is saying to Moses 40 years later, they were right in what they asked. The Lord knew that he was overwhelming them. He did that on purpose. He did it intentionally to establish a base level of holy fear in their heart toward the Lord. But he always intended to speak further to them through what we call now a mediator, through a spokesperson. That spokesperson is a person of his own choosing. In this case, it was Moses. Now, the point is, Moses is going away. Moses is not going to live beyond this moment where he's revealing the law a second time through through Moses. He is going to die in the wilderness. So how will the Lord speak to his people from this point forward? The Lord anticipates the need. He anticipates their desire to have a strong leader. And he says to them and gives them a promise here in Deuteronomy, a prophetic promise not identifying when this will be fulfilled, only that this is what he will one day do. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. All right, so the question is now for us, and let's head back to the uh, Acts passage, Acts, two, uh, Acts 3. The question is for us, what does the Lord mean when he says, I'm going to raise up a future prophet who will be like Moses. And here I think we need to understand the special role that Moses played even among the other prophets. You can rightly argue, and it would be a correct conclusion to say this, that Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, at least until John the Baptist, who Jesus described as being greater than all that came from the Old Covenant time period, his greater role was because he was, the, he was the forerunner, the immediate forerunner of Christ. But other than John the Baptist, Moses was the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. So the Lord is going to raise up another greatest prophet. So now you have in their perspective, if they're rightly embracing the point of the prophecy in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you have two greatest prophets. 
How can that be? How can you have two greatest prophets? Um, I'm a basketball fan, and one of the things I, I, I've been a basketball fan for, I don't know, gosh, 60 years. And um, I read a lot in my younger days of basketball history, and one of my favorite things is the discussions and debates of who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Now, I see I just disagree. But, <laughs> but there's at least a debate there, right? And the people that believe Michael Jordan was the greatest, okay, I understand why. But, you know, a Chicago Bull can't be the greatest of all the time. You know, sorry, it just can't happen. It's got to be a Los Angeles Laker. But anyway, the point being that there's, there's debate about, okay, this one's the greatest, this one's the greatest. And there's room for that if it's basketball, right? Because basketball is just not that important in the big scheme of things. But this is super important in the big scheme of things. So how can you have Moses, the greatest prophet of all time, and then a prophecy from the Lord through Moses of another prophet being raised up later who is like Moses. Therefore, we have to consider him to be the greatest prophet of all time. How can that be? Well, we have to start thinking in terms of what made Moses great. And I would identify these five things. I think we might have um, the list. Yeah, this is the beginning of the list here, and then it'll continue on the next overhead. Number one, these are the things that made Moses great. He would be greater than other prophets. Moses certainly was. He would work new miracles. Moses did miracles that no other prophet in the Old Testament ever did. Just as one example, splitting the Red Sea in half so that the people could be saved by walking over on dry ground. That's pretty great stuff. Um, Third, he would reveal new truth previously unknown. God had made his covenant relationship with people known through Abraham, but it's only through Moses that all the details of the covenant were filled in. All of the 613 laws that identify the law of God and the law of Moses. Without Moses, we would not know nearly to the depth, degree, and detail that we do who the Lord is, who we are in relationship with him, and what his standards are for our lives. New truth. Uh, Fourth, he would redefine right relationship with God. He did that by what we call the commandments. And, And we primarily focus our attention on the Ten Commandments, which redefined Israel's relationship with God in a covenant context. And then finally, and maybe most importantly of all, he would, Moses would save God's people. And he did that by leading them out of Egypt, a life of slavery to Pharaoh, leading them across the Red Sea, leading them through the wilderness, and leading them to the precipice or the edge of the promised land. So if, those are the things that define the greatness of Moses. If the Lord will raise up and he prophesied that he would and then fulfilled it in Christ, in what sense will the Lord Jesus be a prophet at least as great as Moses? Well, Jesus, if he functions as a prophet, and he certainly does, he would be greater than all of the other prophets. And of course, I don't think this is an argument that, uh, requ- this is a, a point that requires an argument. I don't think any of you would argue with me that Christ is not just greater than all of the other Old Testament prophets, but greater than Moses and even greater than John, who Jesus identified as greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. And John himself 
identify Jesus as being greater than him. I've got a couple of passages. I've got passages in parentheses here for each one of these. I won't turn and read them for the sake of our time, but you can look them up just to connect the point to specific passages. So for that first one, greater than other prophets, and I'm talking here with the focus on Christ, Matthew 12, 41 and 42, John 1, 15. Second, Christ would need to work new miracles that had never been done in history before. Miracles, if he's greater than Moses, that are even greater than the miracles that Moses worked. And that's certainly true. He, Jesus didn't split the Red Sea, but he did, something, did some things even greater. For instance, he walked upon the sea. That's even greater than needing to, to split the sea so you could walk on dry ground. Uh, you know, he multiplied loaves and fishes. He, he um, healed uh, people that were born blind from birth and, and, you know, miraculously restored their sight. He raised people from the dead. All of these things were the greatest miracles that had ever been accomplished in history before. So I've got John chapter 9, verses 29 through 33 there. That's just one example of a miracle never before done in history that Jesus did. Uh, Three, Jesus would reveal new truth previously unknown. This is a major point that the Gospel of John makes in John 1, 17, that God revealed the law through Moses, but the fullness of grace and truth were revealed through Jesus. In other words, God uh, revealed more through the Lord Jesus Christ than he ever did, even through Moses, and redefining the law so that we would rightly understand what the Lord had originally intended in his revelation through Moses. Fourth, Jesus would need to redefine what it means to have a right relationship with God. And he certainly did that. Just like Moses gave commandments, we, we highlight and identify the ten. Jesus only gave one new commandment. And you would think, well, he couldn't be as great as Moses. And Moses gave ten. All Jesus ever gave was one new commandment, and that's identified for us in John 1334. Uh, But Jesus, in his teaching, makes clear that we understand that this one new commandment summarizes the ten, both the first five in the responsibility to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then the secondary responsibility of loving one another as he has loved us. And then finally, just as Moses saved in a physical sense the people of God from Egypt, and delivered them to God's promised land. Uh, the Lord Jesus saved God's people, not just physically, but saved them in an even deeper and greater way, saved their souls for all of eternity. And of, of course, the famous passage, John 3.16, is a good match for that principle. All right, so what Peter is essentially declaring that day in a super Christ-centered message to this this unbelieving crowd that's listening to him in the temple portico is he is saying Christ has fulfilled this great promise, this great prophecy that God revealed through Moses. Now the second part of that prophecy is a, a little bit more challenging to swallow. It's a little bit more challenging to, to really respond in the right way. It says... It goes on to say, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now, this was what Moses said about this second greatest prophet, not second in class, but the, the, the replacement prophet. 
the prophet that would come after him that would be great like him. He said, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. This is God's required response in those that are going to have a right relationship with him through the Messiah. I linked in, I linked in the overhead notes there, Matthew 17, 1 through 5. We studied that in detail when recently we were going through the Gospel of Matthew. But just to remind you, this is the event that we call the Mount of Transfiguration circumstance where um, the Lord Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain and, and there he temporarily dropped the, the, um, the spiritual covering that he was wearing which, which hid the fullness of his true nature, his divine glory. And he allowed them to see a greater expression of who he actually was on the mountain. And did so in the company of two of the three greatest individuals in Old Testament history, which were Moses and Elijah. And in that circumstance, Peter was, was temporarily overwhelmed by the experience, as you and I probably would have been as well. And he has, Peter has this natural, immediate response. And the response was, Lord, this is really good. I, I, you know, let's, let's just stay here for a while I'll tell you what, I will build a, I'll build a, a tent, I'll build a structure for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah so that you guys can just stay here for a while and we'll just hang out outside. We just want to be in, in the presence of you and these, these two great figures of old covenant history. And then what happens is, the next thing is that Moses and Elijah suddenly disappear and only Jesus remains And the Lord himself speaks. This is God the Father. And he says, essentially, this is my son. Listen to him. And the point of saying those words from heaven in the hearing of Peter and and, uh, James and John on the mountaintop, having just seen the glory of Christ and having seen Moses and Elijah, but not saying those words until Moses and Elijah left and then saying, this is my son, listen to him is not, okay, from now on you can completely disregard Moses or you can completely disregard Elijah, but really the focus of your attention now needs to shift from them to him because God is doing something new and great through his son. And so this prophecy is pointing to that principle. So when the Lord says, you shall listen to him, we need to understand what the word listen means in the way that the Lord used it in speaking to Moses that day. And now Peter is using it in speaking to the crowd that day. And he's saying, you need to listen to Christ in what he is proclaiming and what he is revealing. The word listen means here to hear with full attention and with the intention to obey what you've heard. You know how it is. People can listen and wouldn't shock me if a few of you are even listening this other way right now which is kind of listening with divided attention. Have you ever listened to someone with divided attention where, you know, you you hear them speaking, but you're focused on something else? Like, I'll use the Lakers again. I'm watching a Laker game and my wife is talking and I'm, you know, and I'm listening to both, but it's kind of split attention and I frustrate her and it frustrates me. And, you know, it's like, it's not, it doesn't really accomplish the point of what real listening is all about. Now, if I was 
If I was a better man, I would just turn the game off and give her my full attention. But I'm not quite there yet in my sanctification. <laughs> but that's what Peter is saying here. And, he, and really, it's the Lord speaking this through Moses. When you listen to Christ, don't listen to him with split attention. Give him your whole heart's focus and have the intention already prepared in your heart. The intention after the attention. The intention to obey whatever it is that he speaks to you. The idea is you can't anticipate what he may say. You may think you know what he's going to say, but how many times did Jesus surprise his own disciples when he spoke things to them that they weren't anticipating? So I think this is why the Lord adds this line. Listen to him in whatever he tells you. Whatever is a pretty broad category, right? It means whatever he says, listen to it, and listen to it with your intent to obey what he tells you. And I think there's two reasons why the Lord adds that last phrase. One is, I think there's an anticipation that Jesus will say things that won't be understood at first. That was the case for the disciples. It's the case. I can still remember the very first time as I was a brand new believer opening the New Testament and the four Gospels and reading through the four Gospels and just being blown away by the things that Jesus was saying. You know, I had, I had heard things about Jesus my whole life before I was saved, but I had never really paid undivided attention to them myself. And I was, I was blown away at the things that he was actually saying. And I didn't even fully understand them then, uh, nearly to the degree that I do now. So he'll tell you things, I think, that you won't understand at first and then second, and going right along the lines of this, he will tell you things that you won't want to do at first. He'll require things of you that you're not comfortable doing. Um, I... There's just so many times in the course of my Christian life that, that my heart encountered some word that the Lord Jesus spoke that cut right across my habit of doing something my own way. And then just having that sense of awareness of, am I going to follow the Lord in this or am I just going to follow what I'm comfortable with? And, um, you know, this is, of course, the true test of real discipleship, whether or not we listen to him with the intention to obey to everything, whatever it is that he speaks to us. And of course, he speaks to us through his revealed word. Now, at the end of this reference to Moses and then the prophet like him, who's ultimately even greater than him that's going to come, there's this word of warning that's attached at the end of this wonderful prophecy of this coming messianic prophet. And the word, is, the word of warning is this. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet, meaning you have a choice. You can listen or you cannot listen. Those are your two choices. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. There's no I'll half listen and half won't. If you're half listening, you're not listening. If you're wholeheartedly listening, you're listening. There's no... There's no in-between ground. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be sorry later. Their life won't be quite as good as it would have been otherwise. They won't be quite as happy. Their life will be pretty good, though, but it just won't be as good. 
He doesn't say anything like that. The Lord, and remember, this is the Lord's word through Moses, and later Peter takes up on it and applies the same theme. Now, in the original Deuteronomy wording, this is what Moses had said. For every soul who does not listen to that prophet, the Lord speaking says, I myself will require it of him. Now, what Peter does is he takes the meaning of that statement by the Lord and he makes it even more clear to his audience that day. He does not change the word of God. He just clarifies so that there's no possibility of misunderstanding. When the Lord says, I'll require it of him myself, the one that refuses to listen to my son, I'll require it of him. That simply means the Lord will hold each person accountable for their response to the son of God. But Peter emphasizes more the, what we would call the negative side of that. The negative side of that is, he says, that one who refuses to listen will be utterly destroyed. Now, it's a word, the, 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 the term that Peter used means to be cut off from all blessing, cut off from relationship with God, cut off from the covenant and ejected from those blessings. Kind of think of the imagery of what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned and the Lord drove them out of the Garden of Eden and placed a, a cherubim, a special classification of guardian angel at the entry point to the Garden of Eden and equipped them with a flaming sword and gave them a commandment to essentially say, don't let anyone back in here. You're gone, you're outside now. That is an utter destruction. Now they're still living beyond that moment, Adam and Eve were, but their life had forever been changed for the worse. And they would never, in the course of their life in this world, recapture the blessings of the immediate presence of the Lord in the Garden of Eden. Now the Lord later did, of course, uh, show graciousness and mercy to Adam and to Eve and to their to their descendants and uh, some more than others, depending upon how each descendant responded to the Lord. But the point of this is Peter wants this crowd to know, all right, you've been listening to Moses of a, of a sort. You've been listening to Moses for all of these generations since Sinai to this present moment here on Solomon's porch. Now what the Lord has done is he's fulfilled the single most important prophecy that Moses ever made, which was not pointing to himself, but pointing forward to one like him who would ultimately be greater than him. And that one is now speaking. And just like they knew, if you disregarded the laws of Moses, you would be cut off from the blessing of covenant relationship with the Lord. Peter is now making super clear to the crowd, you have an opportunity here this day to accept that God has given us his final revelation in the person of his son and you are called to listen to him with the intention to obey him and him alone and if you do your life is going to be overflowed with blessings and if you don't you will be among the utterly cut off and destroyed so that the fact that they were Jewish the fact that they were in a covenant with God would no longer mean that they were in a right relationship with God because now God is redefining covenant relationship just as he did through Moses. Now he's redefining once again 
covenant relationship by making Christ the focal point of that covenant relationship with God. Now, verses 24 and 25, back in Acts 3, he adds another point. Verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Essentially, and I made this point in one of our earlier studies here in Acts 3, essentially what he's saying is, all the prophets agree with what Moses was talking about. So don't, don't think in your mind that, okay, well, maybe Moses was talking about this prophet, but all the other prophets were pointing to Moses. Peter's point is all the prophets were pointing forward. All of the law was pointing forward. All of the Old Testament and Old Covenant was pointing forward, and it all finds its fulfillment in Christ. And they were all proclaiming these days, because these days are now the days of fulfillment. And then verse 25, this is where he drives it home to their hearts. You are the sons of the prophets. Now, what does that mean? This is a phrase that it was commonly used in, um, in Jewish culture of that day. It's not as commonly used in our culture, other than like maybe in the wrong way. Uh, I never watched this TV show, but I'll just use it as an example. How many of you ever heard of a TV show that was very popular uh, a few years ago called, uh, it was a motorcycle gang uh, TV show called The Sons of Anarchy. Okay, what does that mean, sons of anarchy? It, just, it doesn't mean that anarchy literally gave birth to them. Anarchy's not a person. Why would you call yourselves the sons of anarchy? It means that you are, in a sense, birthed by that principle, and your life is defined by that principle. And so here, when the Israelites viewed themselves, identified themselves, saw themselves as sons of the prophets, and, and now Peter is taking that common self-identification and he's driving the point of that home at a deeper level to their hearts he's holding them accountable now for what they identify as are you really the sons of the prophets if you are are you listening to the prophets that you claim to be the sons of because good sons listen and obey their fathers and he's saying if the prophets were your fathers why aren't you listening to them? Because they all pointed to Christ. But he says, not only are they the sons of the prophets, he says, you are the sons of the prophets. And then at the end of verse 25, he says, and you're the sons of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham. And so here he references the, the second of the three great Old Testament characters that I referred to earlier. And what made Abraham so great? What made him so great was he was the individual that God chose out of all of human history to begin his covenant with that would eventually lead to the entry of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, into the world. And when God first called Abram, he made, this is before his name was um, transformed by the Lord into Abraham, when he first called him, he gave him a very special promise. Peter quotes it here, but I want to read it in its original context. This is the very first time that God made himself known to Abraham, and it's in Genesis chapter 12. It's an amazing point that Peter makes here about this, 
this revelation of God to Abram. This is the beginning of what we call Israel's history. Now, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is a reference. Abram didn't know it yet, but this is a reference to what later became the promised land. Here God was promising a land to him, but he hadn't seen it yet. He hadn't arrived at it yet. He hadn't possessed it yet. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation. The Lord certainly did fulfill that. Israel was a great nation among the ancient nations of the world. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, meaning I'm going to treat you differently than I treat every other person on the face of the earth because you're in a covenant relationship with me. And then this last line, and this is the one that Peter quotes and applies now that day of his message. And in you, that's in Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the Lord is not speaking in a hyper-literal way. Every single family on the face of the earth will ultimately be blessed in Christ. But he's saying that he is going to bless all of the nations, all of the world. Not this, there's going to be a blessing that's first poured out on Israel, but beyond that, he's going to pour out a blessing on all the nations of the world through Israel, and specifically through Abram, and specifically even more, heading back now to um, to. Acts 3, let me reread verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, I don't have time to take you there and to, and to fully develop this point. It's a, it's a fine theological point, but it's a super, super important one. I've placed the... the um, I've placed the address in your overhead notes, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul does an extended study, and I would encourage you to at least once, if you've never really paid close attention to it, in the context of what we're studying right now, he does an extended study to prove one point. And that point in Galatians 3 is this. God made special promises to Abraham and to his offspring, and it was commonly interpreted by Israel and all the generations from Abraham forward that offspring equaled all of the children of Abraham. Paul's point was that offspring was a singular word, not a plural word, and that God never intended to bless all the families of the earth through all of the children of Abraham. He intended to one day bless all the families of the earth through one specific child, one specific descendant of Abraham, and that that specific offspring is Christ. And that all of the covenant promises of God's blessing will only be fulfilled in that one single offspring and those that have a right relationship with him. And so here, Peter is making that exact same point. And so he then, in verse 26, ends his message this way. God having raised up his servant. And here it's not a, the word, the phrase raised up is not a reference to the resurrection. Earlier in this message, Peter did emphasize the resurrection of Christ. 
But here, raised up is simply, look at verse 22 for a second. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. It refers to raising up in the midst of human history one individual above others. One individual in prominence. One individual in significance and importance above all other individuals around him. And that's exactly what God did with Moses. And that's exactly what God did with Christ. He raised him up. And he was the true and ultimate servant of the Lord. And he sent him to you first. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did accomplish. He came first to Israel. He even said at one point to his disciples who asked, um, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then later, and this is what we're now focusing on in the book of Acts, later he turns his attention to all of the nations. But he was sent to Israel first. I've got a couple of passages uh, there uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We won't turn, but if you want them for your notes, they describe that Christ was sent first to Israel, and then by extension, following them to the nations. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the last point I want to make about that is Israel, over the course of their generations of following the Lord after the revelation through Moses, had drawn an unfortunate and really tragic conclusion about their relationship with the Lord. They had drawn the conclusion that they were set apart as a holy nation among all the nations of the earth. That part was good. They truly were set apart as a holy nation. But they had drawn the conclusion that they were now special because of God's calling. And no matter what, God would never remove his blessing from them. And no matter how they lived and how they either obeyed or disobeyed what God revealed through Moses, they would be equally blessed. Now, God had gone to great trouble to show them otherwise. Even as they were entering the promised land, the Lord had, the, under the leadership of Joshua, he had the entire nation, after Moses died, and they crossed the river Jordan, they're entering the promised land. Under Joshua's leadership, he had the nation divide when they came to this one valley into two crowds, to two multitudes, and he sent one up the slopes of one mountain on one side of the valley and one uh, against the slopes of the other side of the valley. And he had them proclaim in loud voices a specific message from the Lord to each other across this valley. It was a super dramatic kind of way of making his point. And what did he have them proclaim? It's from the portion in the book of Deuteronomy that it identifies that if you follow the Lord, according to his standards, according to his ways, according to his commandments, you will be blessed beyond measure. And that's what one crowd chanted across the valley to the other. And then the other crowd was to proclaim, if you disregard the Lord, if you disobey him, if you go your own way rather than his way, you will be cursed and your life will be ruined and you don't even want to experience what that is going to be like when it happens. And they were to proclaim with loud voices to the other group so that they were functioning as witnesses to each other. God had made it super clear. You're not blessed no matter what. You're blessed and only blessed when you're in right relationship with him. 
But the key point of Peter's message is now that can only be experienced through right relationship with Christ. Now, our application for today, three basic points that we've really already covered. Number one, see that Jesus is God's ultimate prophet. The final word. Everything that he wants to communicate to humanity, he has communicated in the person of his son. And then that leads us to the only righteous response to that revelation, and that is to listen with the intention to obey whatever the Lord Jesus has told us. And that's been made super clear for us now in his word. It's on our shoulders, whether we embrace it and listen to it and follow it and obey it or not. And then finally, understand that now we're in the role. That generation is gone. The people that Peter was speaking to that day, they had their opportunity. Some responded in the right way, some didn't. But that that generation is gone. We're now in the role of the sons of the prophets and the covenant if we're rightly connected to Christ. And because of that, our lives are redefined and re-identified by him. Now, where I'd like to end this study in chapter three, this is just a short, very short portion from one of the good commentaries on the book of Acts. This is the focus on the Bible commentary, and I really liked this paragraph, so let me share it with you, and we'll end our study here today. He's talking about the whole message, not just the part that I, that I taught today, but all three segments of this message in chapter three. Here, Peter faces his hearers with the central claim of the entire apostolic witness and of the book of Acts from end to end. It is still the central claim of Christianity that God, the one God, the universal creator, has come into our space-time world in the person of Jesus Christ. All else hangs upon and flows from this central truth. With it, Christianity stands or falls. This is the stumbling block still for Judaism and for Islam and for all who dream of a synthesis of world religions. God, the one true and living God, cannot be understood or truly confessed except as the God supremely and definitively revealed and known in his son, Jesus Christ. By this Christians live, for this they have been and will be again and again, willing even to die. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this proclamation that you gave to that group of people that day through the Apostle Peter and how Christ-centered and focused it was and how filled with biblical content it was. I pray that you would grant us the grace, Lord, to hold in our understanding all that it indicates for our hearts, our lives, our relationship with you and with your Son. May we truly live as true sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant, live as obedient sons and daughters to you as you have made your will and purpose known through your Son. I thank you for that grace in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, God bless all.